Hello and welcome to another Kinsey Ag Podcast. I'm Kyle Long here with Neil Kinsey. And last week we covered soil composition and structure. And so now I kind of want to talk about how to achieve that ideal soil structure, at least some preliminary aspects of it or uh, our main focuses really uh, and what we mean by how to achieve that ideal structure. And to me, this is done by something that we call soil balancing. Uh, and soil balancing is where we basically manage the amount of certain elements or ions in that soil to help us achieve an optimum soil structure or that growing environment for the plants and microbiology. This is generally done by measuring the cations, which are positively charged ions in the soil, and comparing them to the exchange capacity or the soil's ability to hold the nutrients. And whenever I think of that, we look at a certain range depending, uh, a certain range of the cations, depending on that exchange capacity of the cations to help create that proper structure needed to optimally support that life that will inhabit it, such as the microbiology, plant roots, etc. And that range is based on the base saturation percentage of each cation, but before we get to the base saturation percentage and what that means, I think we need to take a step back and look at the exchange capacity first. What is an exchange capacity? Is there a difference in cation exchange capacities or... Uh, we actually utilize something called total exchange capacity. So I kind of want to go over those differences and how important the exchange capacity is in our aspect of correcting soil uh, to become the optimum soil structure that we were talking about earlier. Well, when we look at the concept of exchange capacity, then that gives us an idea well as far as some use cation exchange some we use total exchange what's the difference well first of all let's say what's exchange capacity it's typically the soil's ability to hold nutrients and it is and what determines that it determines the amount of clay or lack of it and the amount of humus in that soil mm -hmm. basically it's the amount of clay but once we, in other words, the very first thing a farmer will notice or a grower will notice is the heavier your soil, the more clay you have, more clay content that's in there, the higher the exchange capacity is going to be. If you have a real light sand, the exchange capacity is going to be much lower. Maybe a 5 on a sand and a, a 25 on a real heavy clay. Well, some go much higher than that. But... Basically, what we're saying is the amount of clay that's in that soil, and it's not just clay, it's the colloidal clay. When you take clay and break it down to its finest particle size, that's what has the negative charge that att attracts and holds things like lime and potassium and uh, other elements like iron, manganese, copper, zinc. But when we start looking at that... What's the difference? Why would some say cation exchange capacity, others say we say total exchange? It has to do with any nutrients that you can choose that have a, a positive charge can be considered as making up a part of the exchange capacity. But 
Some people consider all we, all we really need to consider is the calcium, the magnesium, and the potassium. Okay, then they say that's the cation exchange capacity. That's what totals the hundred percent or total, whatever. They say, that's the that's what we're going to measure. That's a hundred percent of what we're going to measure. Well, that's called cation exchange capacity. If others may choose to say, well, you know, we'll we're not just going to measure those three. We're also going to measure sodium, and they can still call it cation exchange capacity. But it's not just calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium that make that up, and hydrogen from pH, but there are other elements in there that have a, a positive charge as well. Well, Dr. William Albrecht, when he looked at it, said we need to take into consideration more than just calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium. And so he used another term, total exchange capacity, being there are other positively charged ions that are there in addition to those, and they may make up as little as 2% or as high as 6% of the exchange capacity. Well, until you put those in there, any any one of those can be used. You can leave some out and it's called exchange it's called 100% of the exchange capacity. Well, it's 100% of what's being measured. Well, that's why the term total exchange capacity was used because it in, it tends to include more than the normal private laboratory measures. Yeah, you're looking more at the total amount of base cations uh, that are measured on that soil colloid, not just certain ones. Uh, because for every positive, basically, uh, to my understanding, every positive charge that is found in that soil sample is assumed that there is a negative site. And so we are actually, and that's how we measure those uh, that exchange capacity. And if we're only looking at three of the multitude of different base cations, then we're not actually getting an accurate representation of the true capacity of that, that soil colloid. And what he, what he was saying we needed to look at was the total exchange of the nutrients that affect plant growth. Not every positively charged ion in the soil, but the ones that affect plant growth that would be there, that would be attached to the colloid. And so when you start looking at exchange, what we're looking at is, you're right, it would, it's called the sum of the cation. You measure all the positively charged ion, and that's how exchange capacity is determined. And then you assume there's a negative charge for every positive. Uh, the reason that was done is because it's, it's a more economical way to determine exchange capacity, but there are other ways. Cost more, but mm. you, you can <laughs> use other ways to determine the exchange capacity. But what I going back to like cation exchange versus total exchange, I like to use the phrase that cation exchange is what is measured. Total exchange capacity is what is needed to be measured. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, in terms of the exchange capacity of the soil, what we're actually looking at is the ability of that soil to attract and hold lime, which is calcium, magnesium, and potassium and sodium and other positively charged ions. Whenever we're looking at the clay colloid itself, you know, we have that exchange capacity. We're taking a soil sample, so we pulled 10 cores out of this, and a lab's probably using maybe a 
teaspoon, tablespoon. I don't know. Uh, not a lab chemist, so I don't know. Are we measuring based off one single colloid, or are we using all of those clay particles within that particular tablespoon, so a multitude of different colloids? I don't know how that works. Well, a, a soil analysis is to give us an average of all that's there. So we're not just trying to use uh, one particular colloid. I mean, as, as Dr. Albrecht used to point out, uh, uh, one clay colloid has multiple amounts of negative charge. So when we start looking at that, uh, it's almost incomprehensible about the amount of negative charge it really would be in a soil. So what we're trying to do is get an average of that. And I never thought or had that question asked before, but what I would say is, well, we're trying to get an average of what type of colloidal structure is in that soil. So we're measuring multiple different colloids within that little tablespoon, not just having that spectrometer bear down on just one singular colloid and seeing what kind of negative charge that singular colloidal sheet has, but it's all it's looking at all of them within that sample and then assuming that the rest of the sample is and the same. Make the assumption that the rest of whatever that represents is the okay. same. Yeah. So you have to probably accurate have the same amount of soil each time uh, you do something to accurately get that representation. And they do. They may, yeah. in the lab, they measure out uh, a, a specific amount of, of the sample yeah. that's been sent in to be able to do that measurement. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Never really uh, knew exactly how the exchange was uh, determined. Just knew that it was the, the clay colloid uh, or the colloidal clay content within that soil and but I didn't know if it was measured off of one clay colloid or multiple or how that well, how that works so I'm I'm not a uh, an expert on soils as far as that goes in terms of how to measure them but from my understanding and the way uh, it was explained to me in terms of how Dr. Albrecht works with soils he's one clay colloid is so small I don't even think we have a machine that's going to be able to concentrate on mm, that one clay colloid yet. True. There's so many. That, uh, so in, in terms of what we're looking at, we're taking an average of all those that are there in that particular sample. We've talked about the exchange capacity a little bit and the difference between cation exchange and total exchange capacity, which I think is very important because we like utilizing that total exchange capacity to help determine that sum of the cations, that 100%. Which brings us and segues nicely into the base saturation percentage because why we needed that total exchange capacity and we need the total sum of what we're trying to do, what we need is measured, is because we're relying on that 100% to divvy out each of those cations and those percentages. That's what the base saturation percentage is. It is the percent of each positively charged ion or cation that is held onto that soil colloid which is negatively charged. That allows us to understand the relationship between each of those ions and how present they are within the soil, and it gives us an idea of the structure and the utility of that soil. As mentioned before, there are certain ranges that we look at for each of these base saturation percentages that allow that soil to perform at its best. And whenever I think of the ideal ions that we're looking at, I think of 
calcium and magnesium, getting those into a desired range based on that exchange capacity is what most influences our optimum soil structure. So, but we do that based on the base saturation percentage of that calcium magnesium and relate it to the exchange capacity. But we need to know the actual true exchange capacity first before the base saturation even comes into play because we wouldn't have a correct base saturation percent if we don't have the correct uh, foundation, the correct exchange capacity. It's building the house correctly and then what is actually built there. And so to a farmer or a gardener or a grower of any type, what is the exchange capacity? It's the nutrient-holding ability of every soil. It's like looking, do I have a teacup like sand, or do I have a barrel like a real heavy clay? And because the capacity of holding those nutrients, it's, if you got a, if you got a sand, what we measure is still 100% of the holding capacity. Well, in that 100%, now we need to find out what percent do we want each one of those positively charged nutrients to be. And you use the term base saturation, and we use the term cation. Well, base saturation, a base is a positively charged uh, uh, solution or ion, and a cation is a positively charged ion. So those terms could be used interchangeably. They they are interchangeable. Mm -hmm. Uh, so base saturation is just the amount, the percentage of each cation is yes. all there, all that is. And that's in relationship to the 100% of the nutrient holding capacity of that soil. So out of this soil colloid, we say we have X amount of negative sites on here. Okay, that's made up between calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and hydrogen and the other bases. Hydrogen, if present. Some, it's not mm-hmm. always going to be. But uh, we're looking at how, what is the percentage of that holding capacity for each element? And so calcium, we'll say, it, let's say it has 60% on there. And magnesium is 20% of that uh, exchange capacity or its ability to be 100%. So we already have 80% right there. So just to kind of conceptualize that that idea between the balance, but really and truly all base saturation percentages is the pounds of that individual element divided by the cation exchange capacity to give that percent. And that is all it is uh, at its, I think, most basic point, really. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we're what we're saying is that, all right, we've got this holding capacity and that's 100 percent of the holding capacity. And we want a certain percent of each nutrient to be there. Why? In order to provide the proper structure, the right amount of aeration in relation to nutrients. And what are the main factors or the main Ionic influences that you find most influence that soil structure. Calcium and magnesium. Now, there's four that will that can be looked at in terms of normally you look at the influences pH, calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium. But if we start looking at what most influences the structure, calcium, magnesium are the two because when you look at the uh, amount of of uh, of 
the various cations in a soil, calcium magnesium is going to make up 80%, no matter whether you're looking at a sand or whether you're looking at a clay. That's why they have the, the, they are the major influence on the structure of a soil. If they're not right, then we got to get them right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to go over them uh, individually because they both have opposing effects to each other. And I think that a deep dive into understanding each element's ability, uh, being calcium and magnesium, each of their ability in that soil, they provide much different results. And so we need to briefly, I think, cover uh, what calcium does first and then move on into magnesium and what they specifically do, their jobs within soil structure. Yeah, there are other things they do to help the plants, but right now we're looking at structure. So, okay, what does calcium do and how does calcium influence soil structure? Well, calcium has a specific job in the soil that none of the other three major cations that basically influence the pH of a soil, none of the other three have this job. Calcium, actually, as the calcium increases in the soil, it increases the pore space. It will increase the amount of porosity in that soil, the amount of pore space, meaning where the air and water would be. So when you put calcium on, it actually, in terms of the soil itself, it actually has a, an influence on what happens to those clay particles. And what it does, and this is well accepted, what it does is causes those clay particles to aggregate or flocculate. They clump together. And as they clump together, uh, that actually increases the amount of pore space in that. It increases the amount of space that's available in that soil. Yeah, it decreases the surface area of those clay, the presence of clay in there, and allows that flocculation or that gathering. We're assuming... uh, and we can talk generally about this, that uh, whenever we're adding calcium, that we're usually doing that in the presence of a higher exchange capacity or where more uh, clay is present in that soil, which means as your clay increases, your surface area is increasing as well. There's a lot more uh, places for those water droplets to hit or, you know, and it's just a lot tighter soils generally. Uh, and what we need to do is put that calcium on to help clump those some of those together. And as that clumping uh, happens, I like to think about it uh, a little bit differently. Like you have a room full of people. They all like each other, but they're all at arm's length, you know. And you start getting clicks. You got, you got a group of friends, but a lot of them are groups of friends. And you say, well, go hug your friends, you know. Then all of a sudden that room of people you know, got a lot tighter and you created these pathways whenever everybody was spread out equidistantly. Now you have a whole bunch of, or you have more space for other people to get through now without hitting somebody else. Well, in terms of that calcium, what what we, a couple of maybe good illustrations that'll help a, a farmer or a landscaper understand, because this is an, this is an old solution. If you have a pond that's real muddy, and it, and it just won't clear up. What do you do? Well, you come in and you take the uh, take take some uh, calcium. Go out, get a boat, get out there, and on half the pond, just sprinkle calcium across it. They get a fifty-pound bag if it's a small pond. Sprinkle calcium on half of it. 
Give it two or three days. If it doesn't clear up, go do the other half. You keep doing that until it finally clears up. Why does it clear up? Because we finally get enough calcium there that all those clay particles that are making it look muddy have gathered together in clumps, and then they just sink to the bottom. And so this is a good way to say, well, the clay is caused to clump, and that's why it clears up that pond. Well, Yeah, they all just hugged each other, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's a better agricultural representation than what I did, so well, that makes sense. <laughs> but, but still, uh, when, you, when you look at it, uh, as, as, there's a number of ways to explain something that one person will understand it one way and one play. Oh, yeah, I understand that. But a lot of people look at their pond and wonder, why does this thing never clear up? Well, because there's not enough calcium in the water that flows across it, and there's not enough calcium there in the first place. All that does is serve to show, well, calcium does cause clay particles to clump and settle to the bottom of the pond. Well, does that prove that it makes anything, any difference in terms of the... The increasing the porosity. Well, what happens when you put calcium on? Every farmer will tell you if you start increasing calcium and it's really needed, that soil gets easier to work. So, and not only that, you can drive down the road, and farmers who who need to put calcium on, if they've got one field that they lined and another field they didn't, and they put the correct amount of calcium under to correct the structure. When it rains, the water will go off the one that has the proper structure first because it has good porosity and that water moves through. Whereas the other one that still needs limestone, the water will stand on top for a much longer period. There's no infiltration rate yeah, there. And so calcium actually increases porosity. And at the same time as it does that, it also makes that soil easier to work. Yeah. And it also has another benefit, too, that... It gets a calcium saturation around the rhizosphere as well, which we can talk about that later. But basically, calcium helps get a whole bunch of different nutrients into that that soil or into that plant. So and that uh, comes you also the get side a little of feeding the feeding using nutrients to feed the plant. Yeah, yes. right, exactly. Yeah. So and as far as magnesium, opposite job. Even though it's to a lesser extent in most soil, potassium and sodium do the same thing. But magnesium, potassium, sodium all cause clay particles to, instead of coming together and clumping up, they cause them to disperse and they spread them out. Well, when you spread those clay particles out, it actually reduces the pore space and makes that soil tighter. So the water has more trouble getting through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a crowded subway station. Dogs. Hey, we can't finish with y'all doing that. Oh. I got a toy that one's you. at least not as squeaky. Because I'm trying to find one that'll squeak. I, for he you. Does, that literally <laughs> is what he does. He loves squeak toys. <laughs> and the other part of the, in terms of calcium magnesium is well, how much do you need of calcium in order to get the proper porosity, and how much do you need of magnesium to balance it out? That's where those percentages of base saturation come in. That's why we say well, we need certain percentages. And is that just something you pull out of the air? No, it's something you can actually measure and see, well, when we get these right, that's when the soil works at its best. Yeah, you already mentioned uh, a little bit ago that typically with calcium magnesium, uh, its influence on the structure is going to do best whenever it's at least 80% of that 100% 
in a high exchange environment as well as in, I would say, mid-sandy environment. Once you go lower than that, it gets a little bit more uh, difficult and takes a little more brain power to to help fight through that. But as a general statement, the majority of soils is going to be that 80% between the two. And we'll go over, you know, exactly as the, you know, what the high threshold is and go down in the specific kind of ranges that we, that we shoot for. But I think uh, more often than not, we just need to try and understand that we're looking at these base saturation percentages of calcium and magnesium because of their ability to increase and decrease that soil space or that soil porosity because looking back at the structure, what are we trying to do? We're trying to achieve proper air. The air is a byproduct of that structure which allows for water to get into the soil or stick around. If you're in a sandy environment, you want that water and nutrients to stick around long enough for that microbiology and the plant root to pick up. And in higher... uh, exchange environments then you typically want the opposite effect and you actually are trying to achieve uh air to get down into that uh that soil profile because you typically don't have enough when we look at uh when we look at the soils and and try to use calcium magnesium we're using that based on the properties of what a soil has whether whether a soil has large a large amount of clay, what's the problem when we start looking at a clay soil? Too much water, not enough air, as a general rule. Uh, if you just look at, a, at clay soils in general that, that are not corrected in terms of the amount of calcium magnesium. The other portion is, what's the problem with the sand? Well, in a sandy soil, we have generally too much air, not enough water. So what do you do? What's the difference? Well, in a clay soil, we emphasize calcium, get the calcium uh, level as high as we can, and make sure we still have enough magnesium in that soil to grow the crop. In terms of sands, it's just the opposite. We need more magnesium because why? Magnesium will decrease the amount of pore space. Okay, so why, though, is at a higher exchange capacity... Do we have that tighter soil as compared to a sandy soil? The reason for that generally is we have too much magnesium, a higher percentage of magnesium than we should have, and a lower percentage of calcium than we should have. Okay. And then in a sandy environment, typically we have too much pore space, which would kind of uh, mean that we have higher calcium levels and lower magnesium levels is a general too much statement. calcium in relation to magnesium so that the calcium is actually causing. Now, why do we have that poor space? Well, you, I think you touched on it before, and that is uh, when you talked about the basketballs and the ping pong balls uh, as far as, well, there's a whole lot more space in a sandy soil just because of the sand particles. Mm-hmm. It's not just a matter of the calcium. Not just a matter of the magnesium, it's because of the size of the particles. So we got a lot more airspace there and tend to have, in those kind of cases, too much air, not enough water. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? In a soil that has too much air, how do, we re- how do we reduce that amount of aeration? Only way is 
increase the amount of magnesium in sand. So in sandy soil, we need a higher percentage of magnesium than calcium. In clay soil, we need a higher percentage of calcium in comparison to the magnesium. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you consider? So let's kind of just start at the top and work our way down. Uh, top of being, so we're looking at exchange capacity. And that's, that's kind of where we start out with uh, whenever I look at a soil test. I look at, I kind of look at them concurrently, but, you know, by, for all intents and purposes, I look at the base saturation, or, sorry, I look at the exchange capacity first. And then I look at the base saturation percentages of calcium magnesium and say, okay, how close am I to our target goal based on that exchange capacity? What are those target goals that you would say from, like, let's say a uh, 20 exchange capacity and then moving on down? Because once we get upwards of 20, it all basically stays the same, doesn't it? Once we get above 8.69 exchange capacity, basically from 8.7 and higher, then we'd say, ideally, we want as close to 68% saturation of calcium as we can get. Now, you can increase it a little bit on some higher clay, but if you got 68, you're in great shape. Mm-hmm. And when we have 68% calcium, we haven't necessarily talked about this in this podcast. Maybe we did earlier, but... We actually, on the soil test, show that the calcium-magnesium should equal 80%. In other words, we need 80% between the two of them, or we're not even close to where we ought to be. Yeah, we did talk about the uh, 80% between uh, the two being, hopefully, the sum 100% of that holding capacity. Why is 68-12 the range? Why is 68% calcium, 12% magnesium the, the range? Was that something you came up with, or was that Dr. Albrecht? No, it was not something I came up with. Uh, Dr. Albrecht is the one who actually taught that we should have 68% calcium, 12% magnesium. But I, when I say that, that's not really what he taught. He said 68-12 is a target to shoot for. And the question being, where do you get into trouble? In calcium, we can push calcium up to 72% and not get into trouble as long as we have good levels of micronutrients. Because as the calcium goes up, it ties up availability of micronutrients. But in terms of magnesium, on a heavy clay soil, as soon as you go above 12% magnesium, it starts restricting the uptake of magnesium into the plant. And the plants won't get enough. So that 12% magnesium is a lot more critical on the high side than the 68. But that 68-12 is uh, what we need in terms of the proper structure. That's what we started talking out about, uh, talking about in the beginning here. How do we get the proper structure? You never have the proper structure until your calcium magnesium make up at least 80% of that uh, base saturation. And if it's a clay soil, we need more calcium, less magnesium. No more than 12% magnesium or we're going to actually start causing a problem for what we're growing. And I don't mean just on some plant, one after the other after the other in terms of food and feed crops. There are other plants that can get by differently, but... 
Food and feed crop generally, once you get above 12%, you're going to start having trouble getting enough magnesium. So he's looking at where do we go to get the nutrients into the plant that we want, and without the proper structure, we're not going to have it. Right. How did he come up with 68, though, percent? I was under, or the way that I feel like I remember it was that he was working with alfalfa or some other legume, and he was working with a rhizobia inoculation, and he found that it performed, that the inoculation, the inoculum, and the uh, receptiveness of those legumes, uh, and the efficiency and effectiveness of that was uh, better in those ideal conditions, and that's what he. That's why he started looking at those as being the target range for the base saturation percentages, because he found that that was that what, was better. What really happened, uh, as far as the, in the beginning, he was looking at how to increase nodulation on legumes, and so they started saying, "Well, use." You use this rhizobium bacteria for a specific clover. You use this, this one for alfalfa, this one for peas. Different rhizobium bacterias need, were needed for each different type of seed. And this is what they were trying to educate the farmer to do. And they thought, well, if we can get the farmer to use the right rhizobium inoculant, then that's what's going to solve the problem of getting them to grow the best. And so they started teaching farmers how to inoculate the seed. And sure enough, a lot of the farmers got a much better results. But then when uh, when some of the farmers were contacted, they, uh, the, the question came up, well, yeah, we inoculated our seed, and it worked great. Other farmers said, we inoculated our seed. It didn't work well at all. And some farmers would say, well, on this part of the pasture or this part of the hay field, it worked great, but over here it didn't seem like it did anything. So he said, then we determined there must be something more than just having the right microbe so we started looking well what's the difference between the parts of the field that does well and the parts that don't do well and he said what we started to see was a specific type of reaction he said when when you'd look at the soil where it was doing well you could always see well this calcium's in this range right here and the magnesium's in this range here and so he said we started to realize we had to do both we couldn't just uh Put the rhizobium on we needed to actually make sure we had the right amount of calcium magnesium now why was that it turns out the calcium magnesium was what was going to be regulating the amount of pore space which is going to be able to give the right environment for the microbe what he started out for was not looking at hey how much fertilizer we need to use or oh hey the, the how do we get this soil into the right physical structure what he found was, is when we get the right nutrients in the soil, the physical structure comes into line. And when the physical structure comes into the line, now we've got the environment, right environment for the plant root and the biology. And as they started correcting that for legumes, some of these guys were dairymen. And they took their field out of alfalfa and planted it in corn for silage. And they, the farmer started saying, well, not only did they give me better alfalfa, but it also... My, my corn silage is the best there, too. So they started looking, well, what kind of relationships do we need in order to have the, not just the, uh, a better crop that will grow there, but also to have the best nutritional value and have the best yield? 
And they found that all of it correlated together. It wasn't a matter of, oh, you got to give up this one in order to have that one. What they found was when you get those soils into the right, um, get the right amount of calcium magnesium there, that's the first key to getting the proper structure, which takes care of, of uh, w- one of the major drawbacks in most soils. Wow. You just don't have the right porosity. That might work in central Missouri, but it might not work anywhere else. It might not until you try it. <laughs> but because he he came from and he did those experiments in central Missouri, he came from the University of Missouri, and all of his research farms are right there in central north central Missouri. So, which some people arguably arguably would say is pretty fertile soil already. So. Uh, so he had an advantage there. That's where that the experiments were done. He he did the experimental work there, but the farmers he was working with was all over the state, and not only all over the state of Missouri, but I actually have gone to uh, meetings in Australia, and I had one of the men come up and say, uh, Dr. Albrecht was on our farm. So it, was, it isn't just that he found, oh, this works in Missouri. He actually worked all over the world. Okay. And... We actually work all over the world. Mm-hmm. And the principles apply no matter where. It's sort of like the law of gravity. Where, is it, where does it not work? As long as you use true science, <laughs> it's going to work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, I like that, too, because some people are like, oh, Albrecht science is old science. I'm like, well, so is gravity, though, and uh, <laughs> it still seems to hold up pretty well. well if it's science, it's science. Yeah, if it's science, it's science. Yeah, doesn't matter how uh, how old it is, it's still going to be uh, true, basically, or at least in theory. That's the thing. In science, everything's still a theory, too, but <laughs> anyway, um, so 6812 is our target goal for the, call it the upper echelon, I guess, of... Uh, Exchange capacities from, from, from 8.7 up. Okay. And then as we start decreasing, our need for magnesium increases. And generally, this is because as the exchange capacity decreases, our surface area and the amount of clay that we have decreases. So our need to uh, actually manipulate what clay is available by the use of magnesium, since it has that dispersing effect, becomes greater because we need it to actually create more surface area. We need to uh, unbind those clay colloids and actually kind of uh, disperse those into a more uniform pattern, a more equalized pattern, so that we create a better, a better structure. Create a better structure, and why is that? Because we're reducing the amount of airspace. Yeah. We're reducing the porosity, which is going to determine less airspace there. And... Why, why is that important? I think it's because if we think about soil structure for a second, we take a step back and think about, okay, where are our primary feeder zone? It's in the top couple inches of soil. That's where the buffet is for all the microbiology. That's where our plant feeder roots are because why? It's got the most air most of the time. And so if we can manipulate that uh, soil structure into effectively holding that water and nutrients where we want it to, then that gives the proper amount of time for that microbiology to be able to help utilize that nutrient and to feed the plant as a result. And as we decrease that uh, exchange capacity, the 
soil's ability to hold that water and nutrients into that aerobic zone becomes decreased. And so we need to add that magnesium to be able to hold that, that, uh, that water longer. Help hold the water. We also need to be sure and keep as much magnesium there as we can in order to supply needed magnesium for the crops. So we're doing both, but the real key there is how much do we need to decrease the calcium and increase the magnesium. And from a from an eight point six nine down, the first thing we start to look at is how much magnesium do we have to have there in order to grow the best crop. And then where is it that uh, that's too much? And what we find is as long as we can keep at least 250 pounds of magnesium available, as that exchange capacity starts dropping below 8.7, as long as 250 pounds of magnesium does not exceed 20% of the saturation, that soil goes, that sandy soil will go better with 250 pounds of magnesium as long as everything else is in the right proportions. As soon as you hit 20%, now we start reducing the pounds of magnesium to stay at 20%. That's why we say 60-20. That doesn't work for every sandy soil. We haven't but covered 60-20 yet, yeah. necessarily. So we start reducing that, and as we go and keep going down, when you finally get down to uh, an exchange capacity of four, even 60-20 doesn't work anymore. We don't have enough nutrients there. So... Sand gets extremely critical in terms of what we need to do in order to grow the best crops there. Yeah, I like the way I like to explain it is, you know, we have 6812, and if we understand 6812, that's the foundational principle, the foundational concept. Sands, it gets a little more difficult because uh, we have so many variables also to work with with sands, but... If you understand the importance of soil structure and you understand 6812 and how to how and why it is important to achieve that, then you can start looking at your sandier soils and understand, okay, we're still doing the same thing. We're still doing the same work. We just have to approach it differently. So underneath 8.68, we start looking at, oh, it's not 6812 anymore. It's 6713, 6614, 6515 so on and so forth, until it gets down to 60-20. Then there's a small range where that 60-20 keeps us from 250 down to 200. And I want to talk about the 200 for a little bit as well. Uh, You say Dr. Albrecht said that 200 pounds in the soil minimum for soil structure, correct? Minimum for soil structure and for feeding the plant. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of people that argue high-value crops will take more than 200 pounds of uh, magnesium in the soil to feed the, their crops, depending on their yield, though. What, what I would say there is you have to look at how many pounds of magnesium does it take to grow a crop. And if it takes more than 200, 200 in the soil is not enough. But how many, how many crops need that much extra that's you know if you're taking huge amounts off it can get up pretty quick to where you need extra magnesium but that's the thing underneath an exchange of seven 
we have to start feeding the plant as well as looking for the structure too because there is less colloids there to help uh you know hold on to those nutrients as well and it takes such a little bit of input to make a drastic change at those lower exchange capacities to to me the the real key there is first how much calcium magnesium does it take in order to have the proper structure then once you take care of the structure now how much are you using to grow that crop there and if you're using a tremendous amount so that it's going to change the structure in one year it's going to make a big difference yeah, and that mostly ties into kind of nutrition balancing as well, not necessarily just soil balancing, because once you get under into those more sandy conditions, it stops being a soil balance game, and you have to start looking at a lot of different overarching uh, topics and categories. You, you do, but I still stress that we still need the nutrient there to give the right structure to begin with as closely as we can do it, and then make sure what we add, because a lot of time what we add takes a while. Yeah. Well, see, the structure is also is going to give us the efficiency and the effectiveness of the fertilization. If we start, if we don't care about the structure, especially in sandy conditions, then whenever, whatever we put on is going to leach down into that soil profile faster than what the microbiology can pick up and convert or get into the plant. So... We have to think about structure as well. We have to think about those overarching things. But just from a, uh, we'll kind of get into nutrition balancing at uh, another topic because there is so much to nutrient balancing uh, and the deficiencies versus excesses and how to combat those that uh, I just want to focus on the importance of the achieving that soil structure and how to achieve those first. But I did want to, kind of bring to light though that in sandier conditions and even in some heavy conditions that nutrition balancing is going to make a really big difference but in a for a sand farmer he doesn't necessarily have the reservoir of nutrients that a uh, high uh, exchange soil uh, grower would have and so he he is at a kind of a disadvantage and so just know that a a sand farmer listening to this is going to have a almost i would say different uh different challenges but uh still just as uh much of an impact though just different sorts of uh economics and different sorts of management practices for both i would like to point out that there are advantages both ways Having a heavy clay soil provides some advantages, gives you a lot more buffer capacity. You can have a lot more, you have a lot of extra nutrients once you get them where they need to be. But on sands, if you're way out, as long as you know what to do, it's much easier to turn a sand around than it is to turn around a heavy soil that's a problem. Costs less money, that's one of the reasons I say it's much easier. But the other part of it is, uh, uh, you don't have to have as much reaction. You all you need, in other words, you you can put a whole lot less on and still get uh, the results you require. I've had clients that have told me when we started working with them, they call the field oh that old sand field over there. And then after they've had two years, they're saying my sand not doing my 
good soils. That doesn't always happen, but it's happened quite a number of times. People just underestimated what they could do with those sands because they, they hadn't ever given the sand the right chance. They hadn't put the right nutrients there to get the results. So we've talked about the soil structure, and now we've touched on the importance of calcium magnesium in achieving that soil structure uh, and the role that they play in, in achieving that soil structure. But what is calcium and magnesium? How do you put calcium on a soil? How do you put magnesium on a soil? There are many answers to that question. Uh, but in, in a simple language, well, we get, basically we get the most economical application of calcium magnesium from limestone. Calcium carbonate lime, or if you need magnesium as well as calcium, dolomitic, dolomite lime, not dolomitic, but dolomitic means it has some magnesium, may not have as much. But the, the key there is to know what the contents of each of those materials are, because one varies from, one will vary from another from where you get it and so forth. But those are two of the ways that you can generally get the most in terms of from calcium. The calcium, magnesium, limestone is usually the most uh, economical source. You can also get uh, limestone from uh, oyster shell. We'll have a number of organic growers who use oyster shell. And the key there really comes back to the key of how valuable other liming materials are too because there were some clients that would put on oyster shell and the calcium didn't change other clients would put on oyster shell and the calcium came up just like it was supposed to it, it turned too out. coarse or it something it was too coarse yeah. yeah and they needed to grind it finer and once they got the the pulverized oyster shell it worked but the crushed oyster shell the crumbles were too big it, it didn't break down properly like a gardener like that has chicken houses or something could you use like eggshells or whatever you, yeah, you can. The question is, how much calcium is it? How, ma how many eggshells you're putting out there, and how much calcium are you going to get? Uh, and I it, think that that's the point to make, though, is whatever source you're using, you need to make sure that you have enough to supply what is needed for that for that structure. Enough to supply what is needed, and make sure you know that what it is, so that you don't put on so much, you cause a problem with something else. There's an old uh, saying. I think it was Doctor. Andre Voisin, who put this in his book, uh, Fertilizer Applications. Don't, I'm not positive this is where it came from, but uh, I'm sure he did make this statement, and that is calcium can tie up everything. When you put calcium on, it's going to affect the availability of other nutrients in that soil, and the more you put on, the more things it's going to affect, and the more of it. Yeah, uh, that is true, but I also have seen that Almost everything affects calcium too, so you got <laughs> not to be uh, not to be the uh, the opposite end of the spectrum. But yeah, I I do agree. Once, but that's what we need to talk about also on range really quick though too is that there is a high side of that range. We say sixty eight percent, and to control high magnesium, uh, we didn't really get to this part of calcium magnesium balancing. I don't think, and maybe we should. Uh, Go ahead and talk about that interaction of calcium-magnesium. As you put on calcium, 
it's supposed to reduce the amount of magnesium that's present in the soil and vice versa. Well, uh, when we talk about putting on calcium, actually calcium never gets rid of magnesium in the soil. The reason being, as soon as you, if you use calcium and you put on enough calcium so that it lowers the magnesium by 1%, when that amount of, mag of calcium disappears out of that soil, that magnesium, that 1% magnesium coming right back again. It's still there. It's the biggest bully in the soil as it's far as I'm concerned. It's just a matter of you gotta, you're, control, <laughs> you're using calcium to control it. Yeah, to mask it almost. It's just kind of like just the, putting it the, out of submission. The key is if we can get enough calcium there so that the magnesium is not in an available form. That's what we're trying to do is keep everything in the proper amount of, in the proper amount of availability. And we can use calcium to control that magnesium, but we can't, get, can't use calcium to ever get rid of it. Uh, you have to go to other sources. The only thing I know to get rid of magnesium in the soil is sulfur. Yeah. Well, I'd like to stay on Voisin's thing, too. Just wanted to introduce that topic of calcium-magnesium interaction really quick because it plays a role in what you were talking about with Voisin. Uh, he said that uh, calcium affects a lot of other nutrients, and that is true if you are on the high side and you actually go excessive with your calcium uh, saturation and you're putting on more stuff. Any Too much of anything is a bad thing, and we can kind of go into excesses in general later. But within our ranges, to help control excessive, let's just use calcium for an example. We use calcium to help control excessive magnesium uh, a lot here in the Midwest, especially. And there is a point where we say 6812 is our target, but we can go up to, let's say, 72% to try and bring that magnesium down and have less of an influence on that soil structure. And so, but if we go past that, then we start having nutrient tie-up issues, which is why, uh, you know, Voisin's absolutely correct, and I don't discredit that. Had to just bring my little two senses that, you know, <laughs> water strips out calcium, nitrogen strips out calcium, you know, so Sulfur it's just one of, the, it's one of the most finicky things you can have if you have too much of it it's a bad thing if you have too little of it it's also a bad thing but the same can be said about any any nutrient that's the law of the minimum by voison and the law of the max no that's justice von liebig sorry and the law of the maximum which is andre voison so yeah that's that's where that that unfortunate balance term comes in you know and not only soil structure but in nutrition as well so and we'll get into that nutrient balancing, the deficiencies versus excesses at a, a later time. But in all fairness, yeah, we're we're talking about these calcium-magnesium interactions and how they relate to soil structure, but they do interact with each other, too. And you can put on too much if you're thinking, oh, well, I've already got this soil, and you don't test the soil and find out what you got, and you're like, well... My soil's sticky. I've got to have high magnesium out there. And you start putting on tons and tons of limestone year after year without knowing what's in there, then you're probably going to run into a problem. So just uh, keep that in mind for, for the listeners out there, too, you know. <clears throat> so cover it in an ending, an ending kind of thing. So... I know we covered quite a bit, though, today about the importance of calcium, magnesium, how it influences structure, all that. Uh, 
just want to know if there's any, like, just kind of summarize the importance of that and the importance of looking at the calcium-magnesium and how it relates to the structure. Many people will say, oh, calcium-magnesium, they're secondary elements. Well, what does that mean? Secondary elements uh, in terms of growing a crop. Nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and sulfur do take precedence when we look at what we need to grow a crop. But when it comes to soil, calcium and magnesium are primary. For soil structure, uh, they're, they're primary. So. Primary for soil structure. That's yeah. right. Well, I think we've used up our allotted time. I want to thank Neil once again for sitting in with me on this episode. We hope that you all found this as enjoyable to listen to as it has been for us to produce. Next time, we'll try and dive a little bit deeper into the calcium-magnesium management and also about sourcing lime materials. If you have any questions or comments about today's podcast, then feel free to shoot us an email at kinseyagpodcast at kinseyag.com. Don't forget to check out our previous releases and also our YouTube channel where I start try and give some content for the more visual learners. Also, want to apologize for my dogs, Edgar and Rain, for interrupting tonight's broadcast in spots, but dogs will be dogs. Hard to keep a healer and a German Shepherd from playing, though, I'll say. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in, and if you have any topics you would like to sponsor, then send us a message our way, and we'll see what we can do. For further information about Kinsey Ag, you can find us on the web at www.kinseyag.com. Thank you again, and we'll see you around the bend.